Infirmary Media. Start. Poop culture. Yeah, yeah, poop culture. Poop, 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 poop culture. Yeah, it's the poop culture. Poop, poop culture. People engage to stop a jewel in decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Jewel in decades. Poop culture, popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Jewel in decades. Broadcasting from the Bio Bidet Studios, where water does it better. Welcome, video heads, to another episode of Dueling Decades, here on Poop Culture, the rad, righteous retro game show where we make the 80s and 90s fight it out as we debate these two dope decades. Let's take a look at the teams and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, representing December of 1992. I'm Bo Craft, fighting alongside Mike Ranger. Hello. What do we decide on a team name? Are we going uh, Jason Priestley's cock, I believe, is what we're going with this week. That's my favorite one. <laughs> and my partner, who I will be representing December of 1983 with. That's right. I'm Rick Mancrush, and I will be partnering up with Mark James, and we are the Mama Lukes. And as always, here on Dueling Decades, we need someone to hold down the law and order. So put your hands together for the Honorable Judge John Cross. Yes, it's your very own Ginger Santa coming at you on this Christmas special edition December Dueling Decades. Uh, Judge John Cross. Hi, hey everybody. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Pimping his shirt. And for our two teams here tonight in the audience playing along at home, the rules of our game are quite simple. A coin flip will decide the team who goes first. The winning team will decide the topic of each round out of the five dueling decades categories. Movies, TV, music, news, and of course, hot products. The first three rounds are worth one point apiece, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. The judges' ruling will determine who wins each round and the team and decade with the highest overall score after five rounds will be the victor. Gentlemen, let's play some Dueling Decades. Ceremonial coin toss. All right, and the ceremonial coin toss this month is this dollar store Santa face made out of tinsel <laughs> that still has the tagger on it. Look at that right there. Uh, so this week's choice is, uh, do you want to be the, uh, Santa face or do you want to be, uh, the wireframe at the back of his skull pick? Mm, who doesn't? I want it on the face. Mike wants it on the face. All over the face. Who doesn't love it on the face? All right. Let's see what happens. We're going to throw this up let's in the air. Take ourselves a mustache ride. It landed on the face, oh, which yeah. means the skull wait, wait, no, no. is facing wait, up. Wait, wait. Oh, okay. All right. This sounds like some Larry David shit that was going on. <laughs> All right. So the skull is facing up. So I'm sorry, Mike, you did not win the oh. toss. Man, uh, Jason's Priestley's cock remains untossed <laughs> at this time. <laughs> All right, Mark, where do you want to start? I think probably news. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. All right, why don't you lay it on us? All right, and I couldn't wait to talk about news because we finally get to talk about something here on Dueling Decades that we don't get to talk about often enough, and that's 
the NBA in the 1980s. Because on December 13th, 1983, with both teams entering the game on a three-game losing streak, 9,655 fans in attendance at McNichols Arena in Denver, Colorado. They got a chance to see the Detroit Pistons defeat the Denver Nuggets by a score of 186 to 184 in a triple overtime barn burner, the highest scoring game in the history of the National Basketball Association. Isaiah Thomas led the way for the Detroit Pistons with 47 points, with Kiki Vanderway chipping in 51 for the Denver Nuggets. Alex English also finishing the game with 47 points. All in all, six players from each team scored in double figures. The two teams shot a combined 142 for 251 from the field, smashing all previous records. All in all, it's a record that still stands to this very day after over 45,000 NBA games played since the historic day it was broken, December 13th, 1983. You know what makes that even a bigger accomplishment is the fact that it was 1983, where they played defense yes. and fouled hard. Like I could believe if that was a 2018 score, that would fly. But the fact that that's still a record and it's from 1983 is amazing. Good one. I was looking back at it, and you look at all the other games that are close to it that it beat, and that those are, they were games in the 50s and 60s, and to get anything in the last, there's nothing in the top 20 in the last 10 years. Uh, in the last 20 years, I think there was only two entries. So those are records that still stand, and it's a, from a time where people played much more defense, like you said, than they do today. Hell yeah, they hit you with a fucking elbow. yeah that was bill fucking lambeer on that pistons team yeah that's some crazy shit yeah he had a double double in that game he had double figures and rebounds how do you get double figures and rebounds with that many points on the board heard he came twice too cheat codes (laughs) (laughs) all right so i'm gonna switch gears here we're gonna move away from sports Uh, yes we (laughs) we don't cover sports enough though so it is refreshing to hear that uh, December 1983, uh, Paramount Pictures, they took a bold gamble. Uh, at the time, VHS and beta copies of newly released movies were selling for $79.95. So mm. in terms of 2018, that's about $200. Picture paying $200 for a movie these days. All right, Jeez. That's what people were doing back then. And VHS, like people were getting them in their houses. Like, you know, it, it was a really popular item at the time. Um, but instead of going with the status quo, Paramount Pictures decided they were going to sell the newly released Raiders of the Lost Ark at thirty nine ninety five. Now, at the time, this was an enormous gamble because of the price to replicate these movies and distribute them on VHS. It was a huge undertaking. But uh, Paramount figured that their break-even point would have been about selling about 180,000 copies at the price of thirty nine ninety five. And that's what they were gunning for, just to break even, just to get into the market. However, they ended up selling half a million copies of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they just followed the same formula again with Flashdance. And this paid off for Paramount. And then all the other studios uh, started to follow suit. And then before you knew it, the prices of owning videos started to come down dramatically. And obviously, we see where it led us to today. But if we had to pay those mounts back then, nobody would ever purchase them. But not only did they start like a trend in the industry of lowering these prices, but consumers also started to buy videos 
as gifts. And uh, since this was December, it became one of the best-selling gifts of the holiday season was to buy a movie for $39.95. And it supplanted a lot of the video game sales that were going on at the time, which 1983 started to tank. So that's the story for December 1983. It's Paramount's Big Gamble with Raiders of the Lost Ark. All right. Throw it over to Jason Priestley's Big Cock. <laughs> What's no big? Oh, just big? cock. <laughs> it's just his cock. There was no uh, word about how large it was. Oh, okay. Flaccid. I'm not going to say how I know that then. We'll just go to you guys. <laughs> you, you just made it pornographic. It's it's a children's show. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, can I point out one one quick thing? We we put half the uh, the video up for the last episode, and somebody did report us for language. Ooh. People, I'm just going to throw this out there now. If you don't like the language, don't fucking listen. <laughs> <laughs> they reported us on Facebook for language? Yes. Is that a thing now? I mean, I know uh, that he's... I can't show my penis, but I can say <laughs> penis, right? Apparently, the, the, they got offended. That's a textbook term. Yeah. yeah. So turn us the fuck off if you don't like the fucking language, <laughs> you hunting squares. <laughs> Anyhow, back to uh, Jason Priestley's cock. <laughs> All right, Bo, who's uh, holding the cock? Me or you? Uh, I'm going to go with you first, Mike. I'll uh, take your esteemed lead here. Oh, okay. Well, on December 9th, 1992, this royal couple proved that love and marriage do not always go together like a horse and carriage. When Britain's Prince Charles and Princess Diana released a statement announcing their separation after 11 years of marriage, the New York Times called it an unhappy ending to a storybook marriage gone badly wrong. The couple did not originally plan to divorce, but in August of 1996, they finally did. Princess Diana was killed in a car crash in Paris just one year later while making a midnight run to the store trying to find Crystal Pepsi. <laughs> did she die in like 1998 or something? She's still dead. <laughs> it only matters what happens in 92. Yeah, that's true. You can't call her Princess Die anymore. It's Princess Dead. It's past tense. Oh. I made the part about the Crystal Pepsi up, though. She, she We was have up. a fellow Brit amongst us. Let's have a little respect here, gentlemen. <laughs> no, 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 no. Fuck, fuck those scroungers. <laughs> we already know his point of view on this. It actually is interesting that that's come up now for the third time. This, this two motherfuckers have come up about their wedding and now their divorce. So thank God it's over now. It's, it's because... The only news that ever comes out of England that actually finally makes it to the U.S. is royal family bullshit. It's like the only thing you guys ever report on. I mean, oh, we we're it. having this big fight with Europe right now, and like literally, <laughs> it's just fucking royal families have fucking kids. That's all I ever see on the news. Hey, man, we got our own fucking problems. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to make America great again. Can we, uh, can we move on? Let me know when that happens. <laughs> what do you got? This one was kind of everywhere, maybe not necessarily this particular point of the story, but on December 2nd, 1992, Amy Fisher was sentenced to 5 to 15 years in prison after being found guilty of shooting and wounding Mary Jo Buttafuoco. Zubaz sales skyrocketed. <laughs> uh, she served seven years, was granted parole in May 99 after the Supreme Court judge Ira Wexner vacated her guilty plea and shortened her senses. Census. Shorten her sentence. <laughs> wow. She's only half a person. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I'm having a stroke over here. Uh, so she gets out of prison shortly after she becomes a columnist for the Long Island Press. And like all good uh, affair type stories in the 90s, she had a short stint as a porn star. Mm, I've seen it. Just like John Wayne Bobbitt. 
But hers was a uh, wasn't hers like an amateur shot. I think she did more than just one. I remember the amateur, like her boyfriend put one out. Did a little research this afternoon. <laughs> she did more than one pornography video, or she took more than one shot. Oh, uh, probably, both. probably uh, both. I would okay. guess. Just trying to cover my bases here. Not a Mary Joe. That was only one shot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> She took most of her shots from old Joey. <laughs> old Joey. That's right. All right, over to Judge John Cross for the verdict for the first round. All right, let's just recap these news stories. There was something about sport, which I didn't understand, <laughs> um, but I did <laughs> I did appreciate the names. I thought the Detroit Pistons and the Denver Nuggets sounds very uh, silly and twee. I enjoyed that most, <laughs> most immensely. Um, something about the highest scoring game in the history of the NBA. Nothing about Kiki Vandaway. Yeah, right. <laughs> Some, something about men in very, very small shots throwing their balls about. Uh, very small shorts, <laughs> sorry, throwing their balls around. Um, and then the exciting news that VHS uh, went down in price uh, and we were finally able to collect VHS, um, which is, is fantastic. It's a fantastic bit of news. And then we have Prince Charles and Diana separate. And uh, Amy Amy Fisher, the yes, Long the, Island the chess Lolita, queen, uh, was sentenced um, for for not saying. Wait a minute, your name is Butterfuco. Okay, <laughs> let's just dissect that for a second. Butter what? Um, Butterfuck what? Now, um, <laughs> this oh. is difficult to pick because you've got two stories I couldn't give a shit about. And then you've got uh, uh, Amy Fisher slash porn, which is at least interesting because it involves tits at some point. And uh, you have VHS Paramount Pictures, raise the lost ark, raising the uh, lowering the price of VHS, which is tits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm surprised that the first VHS that was released um, at a lower cost was not a pornographic VHS. One would assume porn being at the forefront of most technological advances. Uh, it would have been uh, uh, some sort of uh, uh, pornographic effort. It wasn't. It was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, I'm going to go with December 83, uh, simply because uh, I think that those two news stories probably had more impact on the world as a whole over the course of the next 35 years um, than either of the other two. Yes, but my story had an impact on someone's hole. Yeah, true. <laughs> and it also created another hole in someone or multiple. If it's if it's any if it's any consolation and I know it isn't, uh it was a tight tight uh, uh contest um between uh, uh Amy Fisher's tight. You say Amy Fisher, I say yeah. tight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those two don't belong in the same sentence. I don't no, think. Uh, she was a minor at the time, and we all know from the last show how I feel about minors. So let's not. I feel like they should stay down the fucking mine where they belong. <laughs> fucking children clawing themselves out of mines, trying to be part of normal society. Get back down there and dig me my coal. I'm trying to trying to make America great again with all this coal everywhere. Santa Claus is violent. Yes, the ginger Santa Claus is here to bring <laughs> perturbation and despair wherever he goes. So I'm sorry Jason Priestley's cock, I would have loved to have given you a good rubbing. Uh, but the Mamelukes take it this first round. All right, Mark, I think we got to go music. You want to go music? All right, why don't you start us off this round? 
All right. Uh, on December 3rd, 1983, just a week after wrapping up their self-financed three-week studio session, two-time Grammy Award-winning metal band Slayer released their debut album, Show No Mercy. Uh, this entire album was done on the backbone of lead singer Tom Radia's savings account, and uh, they borrowed some money from uh, Kerry King's father. And they literally banged this entire album out in three weeks and the rest was history. Uh, Metal Blade Records signed them up. Uh, the album was a huge success. They sold 40,000 copies worldwide. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you compare this to Metal Blade Records average selling 5,000 copies a month of all their acts together. And Slayer was only known via tour, which was only done pretty much locally in California at the time, and word of mouth. You know, and this band, they went on to release 12 studio albums over the next 30 plus years. They just finally finished out in 2018 with their final tour. They sold millions of albums over that span. They're one of the most influential metal bands of all time. And they made a huge impact on the mainstream metal. And they've never had any radio play and obviously little help from MTV. So it was a pretty monumental album. Nice. Good pick. Can't go wrong with Slayer, man. Fucking Slayer! Raining blood. <laughs> Slayer! Have any of you else besides me seen Slayer in concert? The one yes, fucking hippie it's... here, and I've <laughs> seen Slayer. Yeah. that's it's uh, Well, you can't anymore, but if you have, it's an event. I, I've seen the movie Slayer, but no, I've not seen the Slayer. <laughs> Actual Slayer concert, much more violent than the movie Slayer. Oh, probably. So. Surely. And a lot more hair. A lot more hair. <laughs> So for my pick here, December 5th, 1983 is the original release date for the fifth studio album by German heavy metal band, except entitled Balls to the Wall and carrying the title track of the same name, attaining gold certification in the United States, although it never scored another hit, Balls to the Wall instantly became a hard rock anthem for the band, uh, and it remains popular to this day. Some of the album's success, though, can in no doubt be attributed to the uh, publicity that it gained from the controversy that broke out upon its American release due to the record's title and front cover being deemed by some as homoerotic, with lyrics and songs, titles including Balls to the Wall, of course, London <laughs> Leather Boys, Love Child, and Head Over Heels. <laughs> Guitarist Wolf Hoffman was dismissive of that controversy, uh, in an interview with uh, Metal Gear magazine, uh, he said, we've always been interested in politics and human rights and things like that. So all of our lyrics we had in those days, and well, to the end, actually, we're dealing with human rights. For instance, and in reality, it's what balls to the wall means. One day, the tortured will stand up and kick some butt. So not actually about gay sex, but, you know, <laughs> about the oppressed rising up again. I don't see how people Ooh. could confuse those. I just, you know. There are actually radio stations that are uh, banning the song currently because it promotes <laughs> testicular masochism. <laughs> if you've ever seen the cover, my sister owned this growing up. And when Mark brought this to me, I go, oh, yeah. And I know the cover because if you look at it, it's a dude in like leather chaps. They're like leather underwear. And he's holding a ball in his hand. But when I was a kid, it looked like a cock head. Right. <laughs> so if you see and it's black and white so it just looks like a hand holding the dick 
in its hand. And I was like, how can they? But then I eventually figured out that it was just a ball. Yeah, they knew what they were doing back then. <laughs> the weird thing is all the song titles on this album uh, are also the same uh, names as the chapter titles in my biography. That's what's super <laughs> weird. <laughs> Love child. <Yeah>. London Leather Boys. <laughs> it's true. I'm still looking forward to Guardian of the Night, which is what I'm going to be in the future. That's going to be like my vigilante name. And then I'm going to end with Winter Dreams before I die in the snow of scurvy. I cannot wait to read the chapter about the wedding that just happened. That one, of course, is entitled Balls to the Wall. Balls to the Wall, yes. Followed weirdly by London Leather Boys, but that's just some of the, that's just some of the people who gatecrash my party. <laughs> All right, off to the 90s. Mike? So uh, I went with uh, the debut solo album by Dr. Dre titled The Chronic was released on Ooh. December 15th, 1992 on Death Row Records, peaking at number three on the Billboard 200. This multi-platinum record features three singles, including a nothing but a G-thang. Also features the talents of the one and only Snoop Doggy Dog. This album created the sound known as G-Funk and is considered one of the best produced hip-hop albums of all time. Perfection is certainly perfected, and that's why Bo and I are here to let them understand. <laughs> never, heard, never heard of that. Wow. That's a hard one to argue with. That's a Dr. monumental Dr. album. Dr. Dre, did you say? He was with Ed Lover, right? <laughs> um, I, I could have said that. I'm pretty high, uh, Rick. <laughs> Wow, great pick, Mike. You really can't argue with that, even though it was basically just Parliament Funkadelic's Greatest Hits remix. But, you know, hey, who's complaining? Yeah, but Dr. Dre was on Yeah, it. he has headphones. Snoop Dogg like, wrote the whole album, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny, Mark, because in 1982, there was a George Clinton album released. So Yes, there was. Uh, synergy. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> or like... Fucking coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So I got to hear what Bo's got, if that's what they start with. Uh, I, I'm not a huge fan. I went through a phase with these guys, like I think everybody does. But uh, December 14th, 1992, a compilation album of previously unreleased tracks, Nirvana's Incesticide, is released. Uh, the album includes tracks from four different drummers, which is kind of interesting because they were all recorded during different incarnations of the band so you've got four different drummers on one album uh received generally positive reviews Five hundred thousand copies in its uh, first two weeks were sold and it went on to become certified platinum this was released kind of at the peak of nirvana's popularity and a lot of people uh, at least the the record heads didn't want them to release it because they thought it would be a little too much nirvana all at once uh, and i didn't realize until later in life that that is much indeed a real thing <laughs> yeah. really what like think about it never mind incesticide and then what's the one what rate me on it in utero in utero we're like fucking back to back to back mm -hmm. yeah. and then right after that they had the unplugged uh, yeah so there was a lot yeah well good died. thing they hurried up and got all those albums <laughs> out. Yeah. maybe that's why they did it wow that's a solid pick man i had both of these albums I had the chronic. I had uh, incesticide. You still have the so, chronic. I still. If have you the are chronic. a family has been diagnosed with the chronic, you may be entitled. Hey, I had chronic incesticide, but there's a cream for it. That's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's really not that funny, but it's a good job you're all stoned. Is it a topical cream? <laughs> no, it's not. It's a cream with a good sense of history. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's okay. This joke's not topical either. All right. Let's move on to the ruling for this round. All right. So the ruling for this round uh, is a sad one for me um, because I'm going to, I'm just going to come out and say it. Uh, It's going to December 92. Uh, It's sad for me because um, as anyone who knows me deeply and personally knows, I'm a huge lover of German metal music, uh, especially because uh, the members of the band have names like Wolf Hoffman and Udo (laughs) Dirkschneider. Who doesn't love that? Uh, But unfortunately, um, Balls to the Wall, uh, one of my favorite album titles, cannot uh, I cannot win this round, uh, which is the same. I know that uh, somewhere uh, the drummer for uh, um, Accept from 1994 to 1995, Stefan Schwartzman, is crying into his sauerkraut. Uh, but it has to go to December 92. Um, and I also just have to say as well, what is it with December? Not a lot of music released in December, no, apparently. No, uh, December shitty. 83, pretty shitty. December 92, <laughs> slightly more. Um, I almost didn't give it to 92 because the Verve EP came out. And while the Verve, <laughs> I don't think is a huge thing over here. In the UK, that fucking bittersweet fucking symphony played endlessly just endlessly forever it wasn't um, on that and, record though was it no, no but it's still enough to hate the entire band <laughs> for life i uh, can't think of that song without thinking of sarah michelle geller's milky mm, thighs yeah <laughs> <laughs> what a bean well there we go then and i was actually surprised um that uh, uh jason Priestley's cock did not go with uh alejandro fernandez's <laughs> self-titled oh. debut that was my backup pick honestly that was your backup pick yeah. um and obviously disco rick and the wolf pack uh <laughs> one of my favorite albums back from hell Nobody even knew they had gone to hell, but apparently now they're, they're back from hell. Thank they never you, Disco got Rick and the Wolfpack. It was a spur-of-the-moment trip. Yeah, uh, but there we go. Uh, Jason's pre- Jason Priestley's cock. I'm going to uh, just touch your tip and give you uh, this music round. Oh, shit. All right. It's your go, guys. You and buy my four. fucking T-shirt, you mooch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. wait till we get the jason Priestley's cock t-shirt up in the store <laughs> oh, big shit. picture of bo's bald head like <laughs> with suntan lotion squirting out the top a yeah. <laughs> little bit of whipped cream just <laughs> just at the peak cream fresh all right you guys control the board mike where do you want to go from here hot uh, product yeah yeah let's get that the fuck out of the way all right my hot product from uh this year's mighty max which is the boys answer to polly pocket it was a hot seller around christmas time in 92 uh it spawned a television series gay boys gay boys something to play with it was also pint-sized gay boys or gave boys let me let me start this over (laughs) it gave gay boys Is this a fucking pocket pussy? <laughs> what are you talking about? All right, listen. Flashlight was a huge Christmas seller. <laughs> oh man, I can't wait to that year. Flashlight yeah, right? Jr. <laughs> <laughs> no, so Mighty Max was you, you all know what a Polly Pocket is, right? It's like a little miniature plastic figurine and she came in like different little um It's I don't know. not a vagina? No, not yeah. anymore. <laughs> Man, false advertising right there. Yeah, right. Uh, so it's uh, anyway. 
Polly Pocket, please don't fuck it. I think that was the the tagline. It was like it went. Don't fuck it. <laughs> it's a toy for your daughter, you weirdo. Don't fuck it. <laughs> Oh, shit. Anyhow, I'll be oh, The lawsuits. All right. So anyway, Mighty Max, the boys' version answer to Polly Pocket, spawned a television series and gave boys something to play with outside of their newly discovered manhood. Uh, they began manufacturing these in the UK by Bluebird Toys. Uh, in the US and Canada, they were distributed by Irwin Toy and Mattel. Uh, they came in playsets called Doom Zones and Horror Heads, which are sex toys for freaky people. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> the Doom Zone is often off limits. <laughs> I can't tell if you're serious or not. <laughs> I'm t- look it up. Mighty Max. <laughs> no, I, I think I remember these. Wow. How did they fucking get away with this shit? All I got to say is. Christmas 92 is shitty. That was <laughs> wow. one of the good toys. You know I hate hot products. It's a goddamn right. oh, needle man. in the haystack scenario every time. <laughs> Mike has needle in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> and here's Mike Ranger with bag of glass. <laughs> <laughs> that was just on the other day. All right. Uh, in December of 1992, Pepsi launched this clear alternative to traditional <laughs> cola nationwide <laughs> with Crystal Pepsi. Promising the world that they'd never seen a taste like this, the drink initially sold well, but after a run of confusing marketing and a complete lack of original Pepsi flavor, the soda was canceled after one year. In other words, Crystal Pepsi was not the clear choice of a new generation. (laughs) It also killed Princess Diana, so that was pretty much... So, two strikes... Seven years late. No shit, it was confusing <laughs> marketing. Their tagline was, you've never seen a flavor like this. How the fuck do you see a flavor or a taste? If there's any time to bring it back, it's now, because your tagline can simply be healthier than crystal meth. Yeah. And more crisp. The tagline just simply should have been, the marketing department did a lot of blow this year. That really should have just been the tagline. We laid off the marketing department. Yeah, yeah right. Crystal Pepsi. What the fuck? You know what's funny about it? Like, the guy who invented Nothing. it. <laughs> Clear Pepsi. It's slightly more appetizing than quaffing your own jizz. <laughs> slightly. <laughs> Only slightly. Oh, Crystal fuck. Pepsi. It's water for white trash. <laughs> oh, fuck. All right, Mark. Do you want to start this, or you want me to start? <laughs> yeah, I'll start this one off. Okay. Uh, we'll just get it right out of the way. Uh, my hot product was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, selling Christmas item of 1983, and, well, we can almost say of all time, yeah. that is the Cabbage Patch Dolls. Ooh. The dolls were the creation of Xavier Roberts, a Georgia artist. They were sold by a toy company for about $25 a piece. And to satisfy the demand, production was increased significantly, uh, but many store owners across the countries were telling disappointed folks everywhere that shoppers were more than likely not going to have enough to meet the demand before Christmas time. And in an advertisement from December 1983, uh, there was even a Ford dealership who offered to knock off 500 bucks off the price of a brand new truck if you brought in a brand new Cabbage Patch Kid with the papers, and they would donate that to a needy child. 
the demand was so high, people were rioting everywhere at stores. It was really one of the first instances of the Black Friday madness that we saw because of a product. The manager out of a North Syracuse service merchandise reported one morning he counted over 50 people, some as far away as Virginia. A near riot happened at a Hills department store in Charleston, West Virginia, when 5,000 people fought for the store's 120 dolls. Uh, five people were injured at a Zares in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. The store manager even armed himself with a baseball bat. So people everywhere were trying to get these dolls. In a letter to the editor published December 9th, a victim described her participation at what she called the Cabbage Patch Massacre at the Hills store in the Pencan Mall. As the key appeared to unlock the door between us to get the unclaimed treasure, I filled myself being suffocated by the pressure of the aggressive hands of the people. Running only to escape the rushing tidal wave behind me, charging not for the dolls but my safety, I was suddenly pushed to the floor with my shoes flying in different directions. While I was lying on the floor, being trampled, calling for help, fearing for my life, I arose, barefooted and bleeding from the knees and badly bruised. At the hands of a Cabbage Patch doll. <laughs> and by New Year's Day, Coleco had made and sold more than three million Cabbage Patch dolls over the short holiday season. And they still managed to go out of business. I know. I yeah. don't get it. You create a product that people will maim each other for, and yeah. you fuck you, it up. <laughs> you know why they were so popular, right? Because their tagline was, all right, you can fuck it. That was their tagline. So that's why it was so... <laughs> you can fuck it. They were it. like, Polly Pocket, please don't fuck it. But the Cabbage Patch doll, they were like, ah, go on then. Go on, rub your dick on it if you have to. And then the other, the other two things I love about the thing that you... you the story you just told... The first thing was that the Ford car company were like, yeah, we have all this money. We could give needy children, I don't know, food, clothes, a roof over the head. Nah, fuck it. Give them a doll. Can you imagine you can that being it. like some hungry orphan that's being sold for sex in Detroit somewhere? And some guy from the Ford company comes up and just goes, here's a Cabbage Patch doll. You're like, I don't know, do you have any, do you have any bread? Or water? No, just this doll kid. Here's a Ford Escort. Merry Christmas or something. Here's a Topaz. <laughs> See, I was always a bigger fan of Melon Patch Kids because they were abandoned. <laughs> uh, I never understood the appeal. Uh, of the, uh, but if yeah, if you ever want to look at uh, human stupidity en masse, uh, look no further than 1983 and the Cabbage Patch Doll Massacre. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end there, John. All right. Okay. Man crush, take it away. In 1982, Hasbro actually revolutionized the toy industry by reissuing G.I. Joe. Uh, I'm pretty sure everyone's aware in the 60s, they came out there 12-inch dolls, and then uh, they reissued them by ripping off Kenner and the Star Wars figures, and they re-released them at 3.75 inches. Uh, they basically stole the entire design, except for the fact that they added five more points of articulation so the, the arms can move around and shit, so you can make it look like your, uh, your guys were jerking off and stuff like that. You couldn't do that with Star Wars figures. <laughs> Kung Fu uh, Rip! Oh, that's where I'm getting at. So in 1983, uh, this was the second year of G.I. Joe, but it was actually bigger than the first year because 
they added two more points of articulation and they called that the battle arm swivel grip. Uh, they re-released the entire first line. They added probably over a dozen new characters, including solo characters and people that were attached to vehicles. And they also came out with, you know, various vehicles, artillery, drones, jets, gliders, helicopters, and of course, their first play set. So there you have it. G.I. Joe, a real American hero. It was probably the one toy that I loved the most as a kid. We had a giant, like, uh, plastic tub, and we disassembled all of our G.I. Joes. We probably had a 100 put together, me and my friend. And we had all these pieces. You put all the head in one pile, you put all the left arms in one pile, and then you just start making brand new G.I. Joes. It was the greatest thing ever. Because they're all connected by a rubber band. Yeah. And and then I went to my mother's friends and I took their skin off and I started to make lampshades <laughs> and I made things out of their bones and yeah, is that, is that right, kind things of just that's got where weird. it goes. Yeah. We dissected all of our G.I. Joes and put them in this big plastic tub. The following year we ate human children. <laughs> <laughs> it was a much better Christmas. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. That's nineteen eighty five. Or better known as the year of Ed Gein. <laughs> oh. all right so over to john cross for the verdict don't fuck it <laughs> yeah, don't, don't fuck mighty max um oh okay you can fuck him a little bit uh it's it's funny the two things from 92 um mighty max and crystal pepsi you know uh i say let's not forget the 90s but but everyone did everyone has forgotten these products no one like these are two products that have literally been relegated to the waste bin of history nobody i still have my mighty max they did bring crystal pepsi back this summer i know but did anyone was did anyone care (laughs) i I bought two bottles you bought two bottles okay how many bottles of regular pepsi did you buy none (laughs) i don't like pepsi i like coke oh okay (laughs) (laughs) i don't i don't like pepsi i like cock um but yes (laughs) Pepsi, Mighty Max, no one remembers it. It's very hard to give uh, December 92 the award because, as I said, these things just faded into into the, uh, into the history. However, Cabbage Patch Dolls and G.I. Joe, I've heard of both of those. I've never knowingly held either of them, but I've, I've, I'm aware of what they are. Uh, and uh, jolly good thing, too. We didn't have G.I. Joes in England. I'm sure we had something like... SAS Jeff or something. Uh, there would have been there would have been like an English version, and he would have had uh, you know bendable knees so that he could sit on a chair and drink tea while people of a lower rank were shot in the face or something like that. Uh, probably, probably uh, you know uh, the officer class uh, fighting action figure who sits in a tent on a hillside while the privates get massacred. Uh, trampled by horses or shot by Germans. Um, I'm sure that was probably something that kids in in the UK played with in the early 80s. And Cabbage Patch Dolls, um, I'm sure we had them. I'm sure we had them in the UK, but uh, uh, not really my thing, as you can imagine. Uh, by, By 1983, I was three years old. So I was already into reading, you know, Kierkegaard and uh, uh, trying to... German metal lyrics. Yeah, trying to make dildos out of my sister's Meccano set. So <laughs> uh, I'm afraid, guys, I would love to give the 90s another one, but I'm giving it to December 83 and the Mamelukes. Hey, Take another right. round. 
All right, Man Crush, we got two categories left. Why don't you choose, man? Uh, you know what? Ceremoniously, I think we have to go with movies last because there's only two rounds left. So let's go with television first. They're both two-point rounds. I'll throw it to you for the, the first television pick of December 1983. <laughs> All right. Cause, and it started off early in the month on December 2nd of 1983, where the worlds of television and music collided as Michael Jackson's music video for Thriller is broadcast for the very first time. Thriller is still the most often repeated and famous music video of all time. And for a music video that came out in 1983, it still has over a half a billion views on YouTube. Uh, directed by John Landis, who also directed The Blues Brothers and American Werewolf in London, Thriller's contributions to pop culture have had lasting impact, uh, such as the zombie dance and Michael Jackson's famous red jacket. The Library of Congress described it as the most famous music video of all time, and in 2009, it became the first music video inducted into the National Film Registry as a culturally significant or historically aesthetically significant work of art. Michael Jackson's thriller video cemented MTV's position as a major cultural force. It helped disassemble racial barriers for black artists. It revolutionized video music production, popularized the making of documentaries, and drove rental sales for VHS tapes for the entire 80s. The music video director Brian Grant credited Thriller as the turning point when the music videos became a popular industry. And that all started the second of the month, December 1983. And that was the first one was like 14 minutes long or some shit, right? Yeah, it's 14 minutes long. That's how they originally got away with it because MTV didn't want to put up the money for a third music video. They've always paid for only two per album and the record company didn't want to do it. So they got the funding half from Showtime and half from MTV. They made a making of documentary about the 14 minute video. And that's how they got the funding for it because it was a short film and not a music video. They released the making of and the music video on, on VHS, as you said it, like right. shot to the number one list on lots and lots of VHS, uh, both rental and purchase lists at the time. It was uh, huge, insane. They originally debuted it on MTV and on Showtime for the making of. How, however, it does uh, indirectly lead to the music video for Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. So it's not all it's not all uh, plain sailing. But. Great. So it gets extra points for that. Excellent. No, no, less points. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this one is a first for Dueling Decades. Uh, on December 31st, 1983, during the last commercial break before 1984, it's the famous dystopian Apple 1984 commercial, which was directed by Ridley Scott. It was shown in select television markets. And although this commercial was made to appear during the Super Bowl in 1984, in January, of course, the creators wanted considered for awards in 1983. So the only way to do this was to play it in 1983. So they waited to that last commercial break before the end of the year, and they played the commercial. Uh, the commercial, which I, just about everybody has seen this at some point in their lives. But the amazing thing is it's only been played live twice. And this was the first time. Second time, of course, was during Super Bowl 18. Uh, Advertising Age has named it the 1980s commercial of the decade. 
And it's also seen as the most influential commercials of all time and advertising of all time. Uh, a good story from uh, Fred Goldberg wrote a book a couple of years ago. He was a former ad executive for Apple. And he said that the, uh, the 1984 ad, it was sent to a, a market research testing company. And they said that it would be the least effective commercial that the firm had ever made up to that point. Uh, so if you look at ASI, which is the marketing research, it's based on a 43-point scale system that predicts how effective a commercial would be uh, you know, at persuading people to buy the product. Well, this commercial was, <laughs> was rated at a 5 out of 43. Wow. And just to give that some perspective, the average score that they would test was a 29. So by all intents and purposes, they should not have run this video uh, there were uh, board members for Apple that were furious that they were even doing this, that they had spent a million dollars on this. They thought it was a waste of money not to play it. Uh, but they told them they couldn't sell the spot. So they ran the ad. And then within three months, they sold one hundred and fifty five million dollars worth of Macintoshes. And the product wasn't even out yet. Just think about that. Like, that's absurd how many they sold. Now, this was a twenty four hundred dollar computer that was released in nineteen eighty four. That's five thousand over five thousand dollars in twenty eighteen. So picture paying that in a computer, and how many people are buying this based on an ad that was made with this chick that comes in and throws a hammer at a screen, which is like Big Brother. It, it didn't even show the product in the ad, but like the miraculous thing about this entire ad, after it was played, it was played again the next day on countless news outlets. So they got millions and millions of dollars of free advertising because it was getting replayed over and over and over and again. And that actually started all these big ads during the Super Bowl as well. Because once they saw them do it, it started to become a thing that you were going to have these giant ads during the Super Bowl. Because prior to that, I think the only one that did it was Master Lock. And that was like in the 70s. And they actually outsold, which they were trying to do anyway, the uh, IBM PC Jr., at the time, they uh, they sold more uh, units than that did over the course of 1984. So it was a huge, huge thing, monumental in terms of advertising. The first time we ever talk about a, a television commercial, but this one should be talked about. But no indication in that commercial whether Apple thought you should fuck it or not. There was no indication. <laughs> I, you could take that one pretty loosely. It was a, it was like a <laughs> quite chicken, literally uh, like a white tight costume. Do you remember this commercial? And then she spins oh, yeah. with the hammer three times and throws it at the television and explodes it. Yeah, it was loosely based on the film Metropolis, really showing that dystopian future. I think in the 80s, they thought that would connect with uh, the youth market at the time. And well, I, th it did. I think part of the point of the video, it, it was that she was breaking down IBM, which was right. the big board. Even though they've denied this tooth and nail for years, you could take it like that, that IBM was controlling the market. They were this dystopian society and she was breaking down the wall by throwing the hammer and they were going to take over. So that's kind of what happened. It is kind of what happened. <laughs> All right, over to you guys. What do you got? All right, are you fellas ready to get dangerous? Because on December 12th, <laughs> 1992, this staple of the Disney afternoon lineup called Darkwing Duck ended its run after 91 episodes. The show's premise consisted of a duck superhero named Darkwing Duck and his sidekick, Launchpad McCloud, and was the first of the Disney afternoon lineup to be more action than adventure. The show's popularity led to toys, comics, and video games, Bo and I are quite dangerous ourselves because 90s kids have guts. 
<laughs> and Jason Priestley's cock, apparently. All on our face. <laughs> Plenty of that. Mm. I had a tough call here for television because we had a, a great show ending, but the debut of one that's just uh, how it be- became canceled is just beyond me. So I'm going to go with that one. December 1st, 1992 marked the debut of the Jackie Thomas show. Oh, really? Nice. Created by Tom Arnold, Roseanne Barr, who was uh, then Tom's <laughs> wife. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, the show starred old Tom Arnold, Martin Mole, Paul Feig, Michael Boatman, and uh, some other folks. One season, 18 episodes. Oh, it was uh, it was essentially a shittier network version of the Larry Sanders <laughs> show with the whole show within a show premise. Oh, stop selling it up so much. Oh, man, this is just a work of classic American television, if I have ever seen one. And how it became canceled is just... It's beyond me. I don't know why they haven't released it on uh, 4K, uh, ultra high def Blu-ray. You know, if I could get the show uh, all season on uh, on digital, I would be there in a heartbeat. Bo, I just got one question for you. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck is Jackie Thomas? <laughs> well, Jackie Thomas is a uh, well, he's a meat worker slash stand up comedian, and he's uh, he's starting a show. He's got a podcast. <laughs> would have been way more interesting he's writing a book uh and he's also super into yoga sorry i missed that one the yeah, jackie seriously. thomas show i must have been sick that month <laughs> oh, the 90s a decade so shitty that someone went tom arnold sign me up <laughs> holy shit all right to so john cross for the ruling I mean, this is just insulting to ask me to rule on this one. <laughs> I mean, all all Mark had to say was thriller, and we should have just ended it there. It just kind of all ends there. It is a monumental uh, event uh, on both TV, video, and across the board. It It is the perfect combination of uh, movie making, uh, 80s excess, Michael Jackson at the peak of his musical powers. It's yeah, it's phenomenal. A big fan of that. As a horror geek, it's just like it was just one of those things. Like when you found out that uh, you know this kid from Motown, and then like is becoming like the king of pop and everything, and then suddenly he's also into you know as John Landis tells it, he went up and he was like, "Hi, Jan, could you could you make me a werewolf?" <laughs> and John was like, "Sure, okay, Michael." But like he had all this like weird groovy stuff and i love that it's like when i found out that vin diesel was into dungeons and dragons you're like yeah they have a soul you know it's great so um (laughs) it's not like that at all it's not like that at all but it's sort of similar anyway um and as for the dystopian apple video i mean we're all living in that future now yeah Uh, we're all looking for a uh tightly white clad woman to come throw a fucking hammer at the whole lot of it uh sadly people don't vote for women um so that's not going to happen but uh uh still a monumental uh uh thing uh as i was just told by man crush because apparently <laughs> it happened um darkwing duck and jackie thomas i'm sorry guys you've got it you've got to bring more than that uh, Bullshit. if you're gonna uh, <laughs> if you're gonna off-road uh, thriller and uh, to win a round you're telling me Tom Arnold is below Michael Jackson. Yes. <laughs> Tom Arnold. 
Darkwing Duck was great. It was an important cartoon. It touched a lot of children, and so did Michael Jackson. <laughs> Wait, Darkwing Duck touched a lot of children? Why was it ever on television? <laughs> what is it, like the Catholic priest of Disney nighttime shows? Anyway, um, uh, and as, yeah, as for Tom Arnold, I mean, yeah... How anyone was interested in Roseanne is a fucking anathema to me. The fact that they were also interested in her pig farming husband. Anyway, uh, it is what it is. Um, I'm sorry, guys. 83, uh, take it away and win. Shocker. Buy my fucking T-shirts. <laughs> Did not see that one coming at all. All right. Uh, so I guess there's only one category left. So Man Crush, where do you want to go with this one? Uh, I guess we're going with movies. Are you sure we could go with movies? Let me just throw it out there. We already won. Spoilers. Let but... me finish the episode first. Come on. <laughs> what do you mean? It's four to one. If we only go to four. <laughs> but let's throw movies. this one out there. For Come fun. on. It's the only round I really like or know anything about. <laughs> let's, let, let's let the 90s go first. Maybe they got something good. I do. Uh, I have an ace up my sleeve here that I'm pretty, uh, pretty excited about. All right, let's hear it. 90s first. This one didn't come out till till the uh, tail end of December 1992, but it was a little vehicle that was directed by George Miller, a 1992 American drama. Uh, it also starred uh, the fantastic Nick Nolte and Susan Sarandon, and that is Lorenzo's Oil. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> no, Midnight I'm Oil? <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I'm actually going to go with uh, December 11th, 1992, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Which is, of course, uh, the Muppets take on A Christmas Carol featuring the Muppets, uh, Michael Caine. Uh, the film was directed by Brian Henson. This was his directorial debut. Uh, this was the first Muppet film to be produced following the death of Jim Henson in 1990. Uh, modest box office success. Not a large effect during its theatrical release because it went up against uh, Home Alone 2 and uh, another Disney film, Aladdin. Film received favorable reviews for the most part from critics. Budget of twelve million and raked in a box office haul of twenty seven point two million. Wow. Not and entirely all- sure how it uh, measured up to Lorenzo's oil, but I would guess probably <laughs> fell just a just a hair short. Slightly less depressing than Lorenzo's <laughs> oil, too. You know, <laughs> well, it depends on how you feel about geese. <laughs> There you go. The Muppet Christmas Carol. I like it. That's the first mention for a December show. That is the first mention of Christmas, right? Well, no, we talked about the toys, but yeah, like toys. this is the first actual mention of Christmas. Yeah, and Christmas it, sex toys are always a... It warms my heart. Muppet <laughs> Christmas Carol. Such a great film. But can you fuck it? <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, Kermit fucked Piggy uh, before that movie because in the movie they have a bunch of uh, pig frog children. Ooh. Frogs. <laughs> Frigs. One of them turned out to be disabled, which is what happens when you mix <laughs> breeds. Interspecies. Like Interspecies erotica leads to disabled children. It's like the prequel to uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Maybe Nanny was Dr. Moreau. Yeah, maybe. That bitch is wild. All right, Mike Ranger, what do you got? A Few Good Men was released on December 11th, 1992, featuring an all-star cast including Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, Kevin Pollack, Kiefer Sutherland, Kevin Bacon, and the man who ordered the code red, Steve Buscemi, the great Jack Nicholson. <laughs> The legal drama went on to gross well over $200 million at the box office and was nominated for four Academy Awards. 
it's okay, guys. We lost, and we can totally handle the truth. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard to argue with. A Few Good Men is one of my all-time favorite movies. It's the Aaron Sorkin masterpiece. All it's right. a good one. Uh, unless, you, unless you're at the dentist, in which case they can't handle the tooth. Or if you hire a detective, because <laughs> they can't handle the sleuth. <laughs> or you're at the mall and you want to take a passport photo, but you can't handle the booth. <laughs> oh shit wow judge john cross some fire wow when he's done reading the jokes off the popsicle sticks we can get the verdict <laughs> all right man crush you want to start off movies for us or should i uh yeah might as well all right so released on december 9th 1983 uh we have a movie that took in 21 million dollars the box office about 50 million dollars in 2018 so it's not entirely terrible for a horror movie, but that's not why this movie is special. The part that makes this movie special is that you had an, an exclusive collaboration of two of the most renowned horror names in the world, then and now. It's based on a novel written by Stephen King, and it was directed by the Prince of Darkness himself, John Carpenter. So if you haven't figured this one out yet, it's Christine. Uh, it's kind of a movie that I always liked growing up. It's a staple of eight, like late night HBO. You had the uh, the Plymouth Fury, which is a badass killer. Um, and when it comes to like eighties teen angst movies, I'd have to put this up on like a best of list. You got the dweeby dude that gets a car, gets popular, gets the hot girl, gets evil in the process. It sounds like Heavenly Kid, but it's not. You know? <laughs> Less demonic. It, it pretty much checks off all the boxes, but there's actually a couple of bizarre things about how this movie transpired that, that are that just blew my mind when I was doing the research for it. So John Carpenter took this movie only out of sheer desperation because the thing was such a huge critical and financial flop. How insane is that? The thing was a flop. That's and actually, it went no, it's true. It went up against E.T. and everyone wanted friendly, cuddly aliens who wanted to phone home nobody wanted like the truth which is uh that aliens are gonna come inside our body and tear our guts out literally and he actually lost the job to firestarter which would have been his first stephen king adaptation but he got fired before it even started because of the thing so that is pretty insane i thought and then the other thing was anybody want to guess who was actually cast as arnie before they picked that uh dweeby dude from uh the billy jean movies louis anderson nope mm. tom arnold no <laughs> bronson pitch not pitch not <laughs> who do you think john cross I, I actually don't know the answer to this was uh, it okay um give a guess emilio estevez it was originally supposed to go to kevin bacon oh wow okay kevin mm. he took yeah. the role but then he dropped out because he got the lead in footloose Ah, big mistake, Bacon. Big mistake. <laughs> yeah. Huge big career mistake. killer right there. But it my, is. my pick uh, was Christine. He could have had an unblemished record, but he had to go and be in that fucking dance movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, I'll close it out. And, you know, we talk a lot about uh, remakes and how we don't like them here on the show a lot. Fuck remakes. So bear with me on this one. December 9th, 1983. Uh, we saw the release of a new film from director Brian De Palma as he teamed with writer Oliver Stone to create probably the greatest remake of all time, the cinematic classic Scarface. 
starring mm. Al Pacino, Michelle Pfeiffer, F. Murray Abraham, and the great Robert Loggia. Robert Loggia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> F. Murray Abraham. F him. Just <laughs> In 2010, VHS, uh, VH1 rated the movie as its number five in its list of 100 greatest movies of all time as well as Scarface and the character of Tony Montana appearing on several of AFI's top movie lists of all time. Scarface features 207 uses of the F word, which is fuck in case you don't know, which works out to be about every 1.21 seconds of the film. At the time of its release, it was the movie that had the most F-bombs in it. Roger Ebert rated it, Four out of four stars in his 1983 review, and then later added it to his greatest movies list of all time. The movie has given us many iconic pulp culture references, such as the famous line, say hello to my little friend, and the infamous chainsaw scene that was actually based on a real life incident in the Miami uh, drug scene. So you can't go wrong with that. That's Scarface, the Brian De Palma, Tony Montana, all-time classic. One of my favorite films of all time in my top 10. I prefer the Brian Dennehy version if we're splitting hairs here. (laughs) It was a little slower paced, but... (laughs) Brian Dennehy does a better accent, though. Does a better Cuban accent, though, than Al Pacino. So that's... that's Well, he didn't didn't actually play Al Pacino's part. He played Robert Loja's part. Uh, It doesn't matter. I haven't seen it. Right. (laughs) He auditioned for Michelle Pfeiffer's part, but he didn't get it. (laughs) Things got weird. Dennehy in a dress, always worth the price of admission. And a clown costume. Well, they already had the dresses made for Michelle Pfeiffer, and Dennehy was just not going to fit into that. No, you can get about one Dennehy leg into a Pfeiffer dress. We got to stop, because I am just erect as can be right now. Erect, as all all get out. Got an erector set going on. I just still wanted uh, Brian Dennehy and Robert Lozier to pair up in cross-dressing cops. That really would have just been... Brian Dennehy and Robert Lozier have to infiltrate an underground lesbian ring. Uh, or something. And it's just the two of them uncomfortably wearing dresses being like, for fuck's sake! <laughs> Mark, I think we know our next cover. Yeah, in <laughs> case you've uh, been checking out the Dueling Decades page over on Facebook, we've been having all these weird movies pop up that we've been finding, but the the titles, the VHS boxes, don't have the names of the movies on it. So check out our Facebook page, and maybe you can help us come up with some titles for these movies. And what they're about, because we don't have the back cover either. No, no, we just have the front cover. It's the weirdest fucking thing. I don't know how we found all these tapes. Wait until we see a cross-dressing cop and a half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Is that one with a? Is that one with a child or with a midget? Like, is, what are we? Both. Is that both? both. It's a child okay. midget is what it yeah. is. <laughs> it was Dinklage's for Peter Dinklage's first film. Right. Um. Anyway. Uh, let's look at what else. Let's do my paint. Let's look what else came out uh, in December of 1983 that they could have picked uh, and didn't <laughs> pick. You've got the the awesome and immortal BMX Bandits uh, that gave us uh, the uh, then gingerhead uh, Nicole Kidman back yep. when she looked like a human woman as opposed to some <laughs> sort of anorexic praying mantis um, with a, a mad dye job, which is what she looks like today. Back when she looked like a human woman, she was riding around on a BMX in Australia as part of the BMX Bandits. 
Uh, you also could have had the Mr. T and Bill Maher starring DC Cab. <laughs> if you've ever wanted to see Gary Busey so high on fucking cocaine, he can't remember a single goddamn thing. And Mr. T wandering around a movie being like, why the fuck is Bill Maher here? Then watch DC Cab. Um, you, could, you could also pick a gay whack. <laughs> which <laughs> is actually a Chinese film, but uh, seems to be, and it's spelled G-A-I-W-A-K, but looks like a gay whack. <laughs> so if you fancy a gay whack, then check that out from December 1983. The soundtrack is done by Accept. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, we love to do the soundtrack to Hong Kong gay films. Um, and also, you could check out Scalps. Uh, a silly group of college science students go on a dig around an Indian burial ground. It's like a bunch of fucking assholes will. Unfortunately, one of them gets possessed by the evil spirit of Black Claw. Of course. So he must therefore slaughter all of his friends. And that's Scalps, that wonderful Christmas movie. <laughs> Movie from December 1983. How do you make it sound like a Nickelodeon prize commercial? And that's Scouts. <laughs> Gather around the TV this oh, Christmas what a month. with your family and watch Scouts or a gay whack. You think. Um, talking about Al Pacino from uh, 1992, you could have also picked Hoo Ha! A Scent of a Woman, um, which is every, everyone's favorite uh, Chris O'Donnell movie, um, only because there aren't any other good ones. <laughs> You've got uh, Forever Young, uh, which is a Mel Gibson time-traveling film. Uh, Chaplin. Of course, you've got Lorenzo's Oil. The only thing I know about Lorenzo's Oil is that decades later, uh, when uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost were making yeah. the Alien Road Trip movie, uh, Paul, they thought it was funny to have a character, <laughs> the agent, yeah, uh, who was called Lauren Zoyle or something. <laughs> so I don't know. That's that's a very weak, tenuous link. But there we go. <laughs> what else could we have had? Um, Muppet Christmas Carol. You said that uh, Jack Nicholson Hoffer. Uh, what else did we have? We didn't have much coming out in '92 that's worth. Oh, wait a minute. We did have Amy Fisher, My Story, which was, <laughs> it claims it's unrated, but then the video cover shows a 15 certificate, so I'm not really sure about that. So it's not but they, <laughs> they, they describe it, it's unrated in the US, maybe. It's rated in the UK as a 15. It was the director's cut. Uh, the sensational true story of a near-fatal attraction left Mary Jo Botafuco paralyzed for life and made Amy Fisher America's most infamous teenager. Um, it doesn't say who played her. It stars Ed Sheeran, Marinaro, or something. And Ed Asner, Noel Park. I've never heard of anyone. <laughs> Ed Asner as Joey Buttafuoco. <laughs> yeah, that would have been amazing. He has range. Oh. Uh, wow. We've got an action movie starring Anthony Edwards called Delta Heat. Uh, there was really nothing else to laugh at from 1992. That's how shitty the 90s were. They couldn't have even come up with some movies that we could laugh at. 15, 18 years later, whatever it is. Fuck until, 1992. Until Cool as Ice came out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, we did have uh, Nemesis come out, uh, which is a pretty good action movie. But that, yeah, shitty 92. Fuck 92. <laughs> uh, except that I think 92 wins this round. So I'm saying fuck 92, 
but I think I'm going to give it to 1992 because a few good men and Muppets Christmas Carol. Wow. Uh, not the not the Christine. Uh, obviously, I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. Goes that saying, John Carpenter, number one director, and the thing is probably the greatest remake of all time. Sorry, dude, not Scarface. Um, but uh, I think I'm going to give it to a few good men and Muppets Christmas Carol, just probably because. Out of the four movies, they're probably movies I've watched way more. You can't not watch A Few Good Men because it is literally on every other TV <laughs> channel at on all at all times. Uh, I think you could probably tune into a TV channel in Thailand at 3 a.m. and uh, Jack Nicholson would be shouting at you. That has something television. to do with Scientology, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, but uh, and it also gave the world Kevin Pollock. We're still trying to decide oh. whether that's a good thing or not. Um, but Muppets Christmas Carol, I watch it every year. It's probably in my top four Christmas movies of all time. And uh, the 80s have already won. So let's give it to the 90s <laughs> just for shits and giggles. Let's hear it for the boys. <laughs> consolation prize, guys. Good game. Yeah, consolation yeah, prize. A, it was a good game. It ended up close four to three at the end with the Mamelukes still taking this one. So... Let us know what you guys think about this one. Get a hold of us on Facebook, on social media. Let's start the debate here. Was it the 90s? Could they have snuck out a victory? Or, you know, was John Cross right like he always is in the 80s wins? <laughs> I'm always, always right. I'm always right. You can't and, debate me. And buy his fucking right. shirt. Buy right. my fucking t-shirt, you mooks. <laughs> right. you, you lazy bums. Go over to the Dueling Decades uh, T Public store where you can pick up, of course, the John Cross T-shirt and some of yeah. our some of our and other, some other ones. Right, some there's other some other ones. good Dueling Decades designs on there too yeah. that you can pick up. So no, it, it ultimately support Dueling Decades in any way possible uh, and buy any shirt. But if you buy a John Cross shirt, take a picture of yourself in the John Cross shirt, preferably somewhere amazing like on the the top of a <laughs> mountain toilet. or something, and post it in the Dueling Decades uh, Facebook group, then you will win a prize of something. Right. Uh, I'll still decide <laughs> what it is. But I will I will personally mail you something, something or record you something. It's just John Cross showing up at your door, staring at you, <laughs> not saying anything, and then walking away. <laughs> be, be, being like, where's the fucking supper? Come on, put, get my turkey pot pie in the oven, bitch. Come on. <laughs> so you just get a giant box filled with boiling soda bottle caps. <laughs> yeah, but they're my bottle caps. And a, and a postcard that just says, you're welcome. <laughs> and a Betamax of scalps. <laughs> 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 All right, video heads, we're going to end this episode of Dueling Decades right here. So if you got a comment or something, just get a hold of us, like I said, where you can be part of the action here on Dueling Decades. So until next time, video heads, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a great week, everybody. Infirmary Media.